Welcome to the Spit It Out podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Avi Robbins. We are bringing you engaging discussions with thought leaders from academia and industry as we explore everything from what's in your saliva to why it's a good indicator of your overall health. Join us as we raise awareness around what saliva can tell us, why it's important for the future of healthcare, and what some really awesome people are doing about it today. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Michael Boot. Michael Boot is a seasoned microbiologist, consultant, and mentor. He's passionate about working at the frontier of science and learning about innovation in healthcare. He currently works at a research consulting firm called Prescouter as their technical director for Prescouter DX, dedicated to providing B2B diagnostic services and consulting. Being at the intersection of science and business, he has been able to provide corporate innovation and R&D leaders with expertise on emerging technologies and markets to help them make better strategic decisions. Michael helps manage and coordinate internal teams of PhD researchers on cutting-edge projects and manages a portfolio of big pharma and biotech clients. He's also the scientific advisor for Medstone and Soft Cell Laboratories. Dr. Boot completed his postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Microbial Pathogenesis at the Yale University School of Medicine. Michael was instrumental in setting up Prescouter DX, which was founded to help clients address their COVID-19 testing needs. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Michael Boot to our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, look, you know, we've had the opportunity to work together for some time. And I thought as we we're getting into, you know, the mid first season of our podcast, it'd be great to have you on really because I've been fascinated with your personal journey in COVID and in saliva diagnostics, but also because the research that you're doing across the healthcare space has been personally fascinating to me. Perhaps you could start by giving a little background to our audience on your story and, you know, how you've gotten to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to. And it's very nice to hear that the stuff we're doing together, but also at large, it's helpful and, and interesting. I would definitely uh, agree. I think it's a very exciting space. As far as my background, so I started really my scientific career in Amsterdam, doing a bachelor's and master's in biomedical science. And that's where I also started becoming interested in pathogenesis, pathogens, viruses, bacteria. So I started doing a master's in infectious disease and decided to do my PhD in infectious disease as well in uh, okay. medical microbiology at the food. I think that was really a fascination for me from the perspective of the pathogen at first. So understanding why these tiny little viruses and why these bacteria were outsmarting very complex human beings, right? right? So many genes that we have and all these proteins we make. And then a virus comes along with 20 genes and it just outsmarts us. So that fascinated me. And I decided to do my PhD yeah. also in Amsterdam on basically drug discovery against bacteria, okay. so tuberculosis bacteria specifically. Okay. And this was uh, where I was also exposed to, I would say, industrial stakeholders. So I had a PhD that was part of a consortium across the EU, an IMI project where academic groups collaborate with commercial entities, Johnson & Johnson, Sanofi. And that really gave me some perspective on, you know, how is some of the research we're doing? How is that translating into things that these companies are picking up? Right. How do I go from a lab result to them being excited about a potential compound? That sort of led to me being more curious about that intersection, but I still decided to continue my academic career doing a postdoc at Yale when I graduated from my PhD. And there I focused on a slightly different version of the work I had been doing. So looking at bacteria, looking at host cells, interacting and using fancy microscopes to look at these processes in real time. 
And then surely and steadily, I realized that maybe the academic track, as much as I think it's incredibly interesting and important to generate knowledge, I started becoming more and more curious about the commercial side of the equation. And in particular, the application of science and research and things that are done in academia to a product or a service or some kind of a intervention that people could use. Awesome. I guess the whole simple virus thing is one point for the keep it simple philosophy, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The thing that really fascinated me is that, you know, if you look at HIV, for instance, as a virus, that for so long, we haven't been able to successfully develop a vaccine. Right. And it just shows you the complexity of something so seemingly trivial and seemingly small and not having a brain to work <laughs> with to come up with strategies and proving to be such a healthcare challenge. And that's something that I still feel is immensely interesting, that interplay and trying to find out how can we use diagnostics? How can we use right. vaccines or other intervention measures or preventative measures to combat that? So when did you first get introduced to saliva as a sample type then? Was it through some of the tuberculosis work that you were doing or is it just a happy coincidence? Yeah, I would say the tuberculosis stuff, it's interesting you asked that because I did do some diagnostic work during my PhD on putum samples. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't call that saliva. I would probably right. call every diagnostic manufacturer's nightmare of a sample. <laughs> Those samples were incredibly difficult to work with. Thinking back, it is actually my original exposure to right. oral fluids. But really when things started out for me in terms of interest in saliva diagnostics is when I was at Yale and I was learning about the work that was being done as part of the saliva direct and sort of saliva-based diagnostics group. Yeah, and I started uh, doing a few collaborations around that work. I worked together with Anne, who you've also had on the podcast, to investigate some of the benefits potentially of having fluids for stabilization or having some kind of buffers, right. right? So thinking about it more from an aspect of how could we decomplicate this for academia and make this much more useful to combat in the pandemic. So it was really then during the pandemic when I started uh, looking into it. And then at the same time, towards the end of my postdoc, and also when the pandemic started, I started getting more involved in research consulting. Okay. You mentioned I work at Prescouter. I started working as a, a freelance consultant, really sort of analyst level on all kinds of different projects during that time. And a lot of them sort of naturally fell into the diagnostics category. Right. And in particular, I would say point of care diagnostics, rapid diagnostics, and also therefore saliva as a sample. You know, through that experience, I think a lot of people would say, you know, saliva is more accessible, easier to use than certain sample types, but there are a lot of challenges. You mentioned sputum, which is obviously not saliva, is a fairly challenging sample type. I think saliva, there's still some work to be done to make it more usable in the laboratory, but it is a fantastic diagnostic sample type, I believe. Can you talk a little bit about any of your experiences in trying to leverage it, maybe in your current work at Prescouter or with any of the diagnostic experiences you have in what are the positives and the challenges that you've seen perhaps in those experiences? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm fully on the saliva camp in the sense that if you just let go of the technical aspects of saliva or, you know, the whole biology aspect, right. I think the first and foremost important parameter for any kind of sample is how do you get it, right? right? And I feel that if you think about an ideal sample, you would want people to be able to produce that or to give that in a way where it's as least invasive as possible. Right. And not only just for folks 
like you and me, but we're also thinking about toddlers or small babies or even maybe elderly who do not have the capacity to produce a blood sample or folks that are a bit hesitant to produce a blood sample through finger stick or any right. of the kind. So I think just from a availability perspective, it is a very ideal sample type. There's a lot of challenges, I would say, associated with saliva, but it's the same for blood samples yeah. as well, right? So one of the challenges is the heterogeneous sort of sample consistency or even viscosity to some extent, because people are not sure, do they have to actively produce something? Do they have to drink before? Yeah. Or what does that sample look like? And that creates a lot of variation. On the other hand, for blood, you have to get rid of all the blood proteins, yeah. right? So there's the technical challenges associated with that. I think you bring up a great point there, right? It's really not a unique challenges. Maybe the specific challenge is unique, but it's probably just that since people have been using blood as an example, right, for so long, these methods to overcome the challenges are more standard. They're more routine even, perhaps. And so to me, I believe it's maybe about educating the labs, creating the standards for saliva, if you will, and making those methods you know, more accessible, right, to the laboratories and more of the standards so that there are these kind of common protocols on how you handle these samples, right? Different color tubes, right, is a good example for blood. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I would even challenge that in saying we've been using blood forever, yeah. right? So there's the argument of experience. And then I would ask you, give me an example of a point of care device that can draw blood and then integrate it into the device directly with plasma separation. There are none yeah. right, that do that effectively. So even with that knowledge, we still don't seem to have tackled that particular technical challenge. So for saliva, it's not strange that we're finding out in this very nascent field, how do we deal with it? What are some of those parameters? What are some of those different biomarkers that we have issues extracting? And so how do you see the future for saliva? What do you think it'll take to get to some of those next steps or who are the types of people that are going to have to really step up to make that happen? And maybe like the horizon, what do you see as the time frame for some of that coming about? Yeah, so I mean, it's funny because when I was thinking about this conversation, I always have the feeling that saliva is sort of at the forefront of diagnostic innovation, mm -hmm. I think. It's interesting from a sample perspective that it hasn't been used a lot, but now it seems to be very successful because of SARS-CoV-2 detection. Yeah. It seems to have gotten a lot of attention. But to have that innovation integrate into general practice, I mean, innovation always outruns general practice. That's the basic definition of innovation is right. you're doing something or you're trying something that hasn't been generally accepted. And a lot of the structures, especially in diagnostics, I would say are very risk averse. So if you ask me, how can you change that? Well, people have been trained to believe what has worked historically. And when something new comes around to be hesitant, yeah. I think a catastrophic event that is the pandemic has really helped to sort of put saliva on the map and to say, well, look, this is something that can really drive value. And I think folks such yeah. as yourself, right, and Porex in general, and also folks at Yale or other labs that have worked on it are the people that are at the forefront of helping saliva being integrated into diagnostics. I think sort of what has to change is there's been this huge uptick in attention for it as a sample right. that's sort of sloping down now as the pandemic is fortunately fading out slowly. But I do think that it has generated a lot of interest also from some of the bigger diagnostic players. And I think that's really the way where this is going to be pushed forward is that now it has been put on someone's roadmap for yeah. the next few years to be developed. And that will start another sort of cycle of okay, now we have an essay that fits that, or now we have some kind of a device that works with oral fluids or with saliva. And 
how are we then going to market it? And that will increase acceptance. So I see this sort of as a domino effect that has been started originally. Yeah, I think that's a good point, right? Trying to ensure that it's, or the first signs of its acceptance, it's the preferred sample on the diagnostic roadmap, right? You know, you look at, you know, the big diagnostic players, right? And they're developing new assays all the time, right? And it's usually the standard samples that are being validated first, right? And then honestly, it's typically up to the laboratories to then go validate alternate sample types. Mm -hmm. It's a good point, right? A good place to look, to look for that sign of change. I'll certainly be keeping an eye out for that. (laughs) And it's also the biology, right? So now there's academic groups that have obtained funding because they're working on saliva-based diagnostics who are now maybe going to look to more fundamental science. And with that, I mean for half of the biomarkers that exist in the human body, we usually have no idea how those reflect in saliva. And so understanding some of those things, it will take away arguments against using it because in some cases it is present in saliva and it can be easily extracted or it is incredibly stable or it's even high expression in saliva versus blood. You know, so all these kinds of pieces that can be used to construct commercial essays or to sort of boost the use of saliva as a sample are also in progress in tandem with some of those commercial endeavors. That's a very good point. You know, you brought up about COVID pandemic sort of accelerating the familiarity of saliva and diagnostics in general. You know, I think you were on the front lines, right? Whether it was with Saliva Direct supporting that diagnostic development, but also in what your team at Prescouter was doing to try to offer testing services. Can you give us a little bit about that early pre-scouter experience with COVID testing? What are some of the challenges you faced? Yeah, for sure. So pre-scouter itself is a research consulting firm and we work with all kinds of clients that are trying to solve healthcare, life science issues, in my pod at least, uh, as a technical director at large. But focusing on that, we noticed that there were a variety of folks and clients, especially in manufacturing and that had large-scale operations with a lot of folks in one room during the pandemic that came to us and said, We don't really know what to do or how to do it, but we're realizing that we may want to do some kind of diagnostic test to make sure that for the folks that are working with us, they are safe, they're protected, there's no outbreaks, etc. That's when my CEO and I, we started sort of brainstorming about what does that look like, right? How can you then go to some of these clients and say, this is a plan that you can commit to that will help you. And from my work with Anne and from sort of being aware of what's out there, I realized that saliva is a really good sample to test non-invasively. You don't need a phlebotomist, right? You don't need a healthcare practitioner sticking swabs up someone's nose. That would allow these labs to source those samples in an effective way and then ship them to a central lab that can then test them. And so we started out looking for who can do this. And the answer was... Not really anyone at that point in time. (laughs) And this was at the start of the pandemic. So things were sort of unraveling. I remember thinking, well, this can't be true. You know, there has to be someone who's developing this. And actually, we eventually found out a few lab partners and folks that were setting these things up, that were doing individual testing, but also pooled saliva sample testing. And those were really the relationships that we forged to then link some of our clients to those testing needs. Awesome. Now, and I think, you know, Prescouter DX, right, has evolved right beyond, you know, COVID, right? Maybe, I don't know if that was the impetus, but if that was the impetus right now, you know, what's the future look like for Prescouter DX and what you're doing there? Yeah. So since it's not our core business, it is definitely an interest area of mine. But what we started to do is try and explore other areas where we see 
again, focus really being on saliva, because that's my belief that that is going to be, if anything, accepted within these realms of working environments. We started looking into drugs of abuse testing, toxicology testing. And one thing that we've noticed, and one thing that also, I guess, resonates with folks that are developing essays and are trying to go into these diagnostic areas, we noticed that there's not so much interest in that moving away from their standard procedures, using urine, for instance, or having someone go to a site and providing a urine sample and them coming back. Well, you know, the whole case is there, right? Someone can stay on site, they can produce a live sample and it's done. Or even produce it on site, test it on site and it's done. And yet there seems to be a big hesitancy or not the urgency that is felt, that was felt with SARS-CoV-2 to really sort of catalyze that change. And I think that's something that will take a much longer and slower slope trajectory to achieve. But it's definitely something we see more and more folks being interested in. One example is for urine testing, it's always the issue of having someone supervise that. And so saliva is a, I always say it's a unisex sample because there it doesn't matter who is producing it the person who sits right the chain of custody is easier to establish right exactly in these modern times you know i think that is an argument that people should consider and also just from a practical point of view if you ask me sort of where things are heading which is also what you mentioned i definitely see a space in more the toxicology testing for heavy metal detection or those kinds of pollution during manufacturing okay i think that's something that's quite underdeveloped and where again saliva could be that easy to use sample to just pulse check what is going on and to make sure that nothing is getting out of hand in terms of pollution levels again sort of the alternatives are quite invasive right and some of these factories, they work with dangerous materials. So I think it's sort of a, as these tools become more accessible and maybe more cost effective, I think there will be a drive towards using it as a sample. So as a really a way to ensure worker safety inside of these manufacturing environments? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be check everyone every day. Right. You could say, well, we check one in 50 people yep. every week and we just do a randomization and see what's going on. And then the other area, I think, is really roadside testing, drugs of abuse testing. Now that the regulations in the U.S. around saliva as a sample are changing, I feel that that's going to be an enormous area of opportunity. And so I'm curious to see how that will evolve as well. And also that trajectory, right? Because it will have those same challenges that the acceptance of it, unless being mandated by government, it might be a bit slower than what we saw with the adoption for infectious disease testing. Yeah, certainly what we're seeing is not confusion, but you know, the slow rollout of the regulation change and you know, what does that really mean? And a lot of things that were defined for urine samples that are trying to be converted to saliva and it isn't a perfect, you know, match, right? And then to your point earlier, right, the scientific evidence is certainly there for saliva, but it's not the same. The level of a drug, for example, in your saliva is different than it is in your blood and the half-life, right, or the decay and what those levels look like are different. And so It'll be important to continue to study that, I think, so that the adoption can continue to accelerate. I am super energized by that change in regulation because I think it will take some things like that to help move this forward. I think that's a big recognition that saliva is good for drugs of abuse and toxicology testing and will be important, right, to attain that moving forward. You're someone that's sitting kind of on the leading edge horizon of technology. And as you mentioned, you're focused in the life sciences space. What are you know, some really cool things that you're coming across or you know, big trends that we should be looking out for? 
Yeah, that's always a hot topic, <laughs> the trends discussions. I would say, generally speaking, things that I'm excited about are taking the central lab away from the equation where possible. And with that, I mean not just having a point of care device, but even moving certain diagnostic solutions or processes to someone's home or to a wearable that people right. are wearing that assesses some of these things. And while a lot of things sometimes sound very sci-fi, I do think one of the bigger trends is some of that decentralization. And again, if you think about saliva, yeah. if you think about other tools that we have, the more that happens, the more it becomes relevant that sure. things such as sampling become easy to do or accessible, right? So there's some kind of a decentralization yeah. going on. And then the other thing is, what I find particularly exciting is within that movement away from the central lab, from those huge devices, the big LCMSs, you know, those, those fridge-sized things that make a lot of noise or require a lot of maintenance, we're trying to put that into a small box right. and demand that it does the same job in terms of performance or clinical capabilities. And so there's this very interesting development in sensor and detection technologies that I think go hand in hand with that movement that are very interesting to see, right? Sort of nano detection yeah, or, or very small scale detection of low level of analytes. Yeah, you see these, at least for COVID and, and probably just a platform, right, that uses, you know, COVID as an opportunity to launch these point of care technologies that are doing molecular diagnostic in a small little box, right? It is pretty incredible. I think, you know, we need to see more scale, right, in order to get the cost down to make it so people will want to do it at home. And, and I think you'll see the pipeline of tests, right, be super important. But if you think back mm -hmm. to, you know, I'm interested in your take on this, right, I got my start in the medical device space in the diabetes industry about 15 20 years ago. And back then, people were, you know, just talking about continuous glucose monitoring, right? You know, we were making lancing devices to collect, you know, blood drop for a blood glucose test. And it's really been incredible to see how that's basically the standard today, right? Mm -hmm. Back then, it was not really something that you had to worry about. And so I guess that was a 10, 15 year horizon, I would say, right, from when we were doing some early tests with some big partners in that continuous monitoring space to today is pretty much a standard. How do you see these horizons evolving? Of course, technology and innovation are rapidly accelerating. What do you think is the timing to see some of these new diagnostic technologies become more mainstream? Yeah, if I would accurately know, I'd, I'd probably be an investment banker. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a fair question. And one of the things I feel is closer to that one sure. might think is, so a lot of these devices, they work on an essay basis. So they're asking, which of these two is the answer? Mm -hmm. Or is it any of these two, right? Is it SARS-CoV-2 or flu? And I think one of the things that will change is that those kinds of essays will stop existing. I mean, at first they'll expand, right? To being all kinds of different pathogens or the top 10. And at some point it will change to saying sample and this is in it agnostically. Right. And I think that is a very exciting yeah. development. Because that would sort of be the capabilities of doing some kind of a sequencing experiment or doing some kind of a molecular culture, right? Where you investigate what's in the mixture. And those essays exist in a form and shape where they are not that far away from taking a step towards decreasing cost or being put in a box. The other area I think that is sort of on that horizon is really not so much at home. I think yeah. at home is, is sort of an interesting discussion on its own, but more that physician visits or, you know, some kind of a pre-hospital setup where there is a 
multimodal analyzer that people can readily use to say not only do you have a UTI or not, but also, and this is some of your blood measurements or blood counts. Right. And these are some of the major metabolites within your body that are, we see your CRP is up. So, you know, we assume this. And I think that sort of all-in-one or that multimodality is also something that is sort of getting to a point where it's feasible to have. And that can really be very interesting from a healthcare perspective, but also a continuum of care perspective where, you know, you get into all kinds of discussions about the presence of clinical labs or physicians' offices becoming labs or pharmacies in the U.S. becoming labs. Yeah, I think that whole area of research is one that's going to be exploding, right? I think there's two pieces to that, right? The screening, right? So, you know, does it have to be as accurate as the molecular lab or or as the this big equipment, right? Because if you're just looking for early signs of something, right, to go in for confirmation, and there's a whole lot of debate on that too, right? Because you don't want to start creating a lot of false positives and having people worried or, or create a lot of unnecessary cost in the healthcare system. That certainly wouldn't be productive. But if we can make the samples more accessible, right, and people want to collect more frequently. I think in terms of personal wellness and what you're talking about, the information we can provide to ourselves to make our own healthcare decisions, but also to our doctors across specialties, right, is where a lot of the power, you know, will come. And you're seeing technologies come out already to try to start doing that, whether it's in a, you know, rapid format, you know, that you can do yourself or through more accessible collection and just monitoring of a whole, you know, wealth of information or or markers about yourself. Yeah. And some things you may not want to take away from a clinical lab, right? Absolutely. Like a good example is there's a lot of assays that are considering HIV to be included or excluded. I mean, I think it's good to have some kind of an indication, right? Whether there's an infection or not, but you might want to make 100% sure whether it's a yes or a no, much more than maybe do you have Ceph aureus on your skin? Or is your creatinine level 100 or 90, right? Because for the clinical decision-making, it may not matter as much. And so I think that is an interesting driving factor that people sometimes forget is you have to think about what does it mean clinically and how bad is it if I'm a bit off, right, from that value? Because in most cases, a trend would be enough, right? Your CRP is either 0 or 0.1 in normal state. So if you detect that it's 80 or 120 or 140, it doesn't matter. It's red flags in any way. So in those kinds of situations, those assets would be more forgiving to any kind of inaccuracy. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Look, Michael, uh, thanks for taking the time to speak to me today. You know, your involvement through Prescouter to educate clients and consumers and advocate for saliva-based testing really, I think, has been fantastic in evangelizing the need for saliva-based testing. The work that you did with Prescouter DX during COVID to select and promote, you know, the best kinds of testing solutions and finding the lab partners that were willing to do it, I think was valuable and very meaningful work. It's been a pleasure to hear your story and to share it with our team because I've been fascinated over the last you know year or so that we've been working together. And really your insights into the diagnostic space, I think would is something that our listeners will really enjoy. So I appreciate you coming on with us today. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for listening to the Spit It Out podcast. I'm your host, Avi Robbins. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on our journey to raise awareness about saliva diagnostics, the future of healthcare, and hear stories from some really awesome industry and academic leaders. Thank you.